23 miles south of Jerusalem and seven miles from Hebron was a small cluster of tiny farming villages. As these villages grew together, they formed a little town called Kerioth, a town that would one day give birth to a child who would become the most despicable, wretched human being who ever lived. His name was Judas Iscariot. He had a privilege that only 11 other men have ever had in all of human history. He had the privilege of being chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ to be one of the 12 disciples. He had the privilege of walking with Jesus and talking with Jesus and eating with Jesus and praying with Jesus and ministering with Jesus and being with Jesus. Yet his love for money and his love for power and his love for self led him to sell the perfect, pure Son of God for a few pieces of silver. And even though he eventually tried to give the money back, he could not undo the despicable act he had done. Rather than turning in repentance to the gracious Lord for mercy and forgiveness, he decided to kill himself thinking that somehow he could escape the consequences of what he had done. But he couldn't. He didn't want to repent. He only wanted to get out from underneath the guilt he felt and the consequences he faced, so he killed himself. When he did, the Bible makes it clear that he went to his eternal dwelling place of damnation. He is called in Scripture the son of perdition. That phrase could also be translated son of destruction or son of utter ruin or son of hell. That's where Judas will spend eternity because of his refusal to truly surrender his heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the most tragic story in all of human history. Mark gives us part of the story in the text to which we come this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 14, and please follow along as I read just two verses, verses 11 and 12. Mark chapter 14, verse 11. I'm sorry, verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Let me remind you of where we are in Mark's gospel so we can appreciate the significance of these verses. Here in this 14th chapter, Mark tells us about all the events leading up to the death of Jesus. He tells about the plot of the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus. That's verses 1 and 2. He tells about the anointing by Mary for burial, verses 3 through 9. He tells about the agreement of Judas to betray Jesus here in 10 and 11. He tells about the final Passover with the disciples, Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' arrest in the Garden, and then the initial trial of Jesus. 
All of these events lead up to the pinnacle of Mark's gospel, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus in chapters 15 and 16. (coughs) So as we work our way through this 14th chapter, Mark is leading us on a journey that will culminate in the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. One of the events that led to that culmination is this one here in verses 10 and 11. Judas, one of the 12 disciples, decided to betray Jesus to the Jewish leaders. These leaders had already decided to kill Jesus, as we saw in the opening couple of verses in the chapter, but they didn't know how they were going to pull it off. They didn't know how they could get it done. One thing they determined to do was to wait until after the Passover holiday so there wouldn't be a riot among people who were sympathetic to Jesus. However, when Judas stepped forward and offered to betray Jesus, that changed everything. The leaders knew they had to take advantage of this unique opportunity even if it meant expediting the process faster than, that, than what they would have preferred. All of this was going on behind the scenes, away from the public eye. Something else happened behind the scenes in that last week before Jesus was crucified. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anointed Jesus for his burial by pouring on his head and feet a flask of very costly fragrant oil. Mark tells us about that event in verses 3 through 9 of this chapter. Coming right off of that event, we are told about the diabolical plan of Judas to sell Jesus. It is very likely that Mary's actions back in verse 3 prompted Judas to decide to betray Jesus. Because we read in verse 3, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard, then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. John 12 tells us that uh, that Judas objected to this by criticizing this woman and saying that the perfume could have been sold for a year's worth of wages and given to the poor. Then John adds this comment in verse 6 of chapter 12 in his gospel. This Judas said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Judas was upset that his opportunity to get his hands on all that money was gone in an instant. As a result, he may have decided that it was time to betray Jesus for whatever he could get for him. That brings us to our brief but immeasurably sad text this morning. Verse 11 of this 14th chapter, or verse 10, tells us, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. Judas went to this group because he knew that they were one of the groups of leaders that was most dead set against Jesus. The chief priests were threatened by Jesus because he continually challenged their false religion and challenged their inaccurate use of Scripture and challenged their money-making practices in the temple. So they wanted to get rid of Jesus, and Judas knew that. 
Therefore, when he decided that he was going to sell Jesus, he knew exactly where to go. He knew he could go to this group of chief priests. And verse 11 tells us, When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, so he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Matthew tells us that this agreement was 30 pieces of silver. According to Exodus 21:32, 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. That's all the chief priests thought Jesus was worth, and that's all Judas thought he was worth. So they agreed on the price of 30 pieces of silver, and Judas got his money on the spot, according to Matthew's account. Judas got his money... And now he just looked for the right time to carry out his dastardly, sinister deed. That opportunity would come late on Thursday night after Jesus had eaten Passover with his disciples. When Jesus left the upper room in Jerusalem and went across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, Judas knew this was his chance. So he led a mob to the place so they could apprehend Jesus. It is an appalling scene to consider. Where did it all go wrong for Judas? How did he end up like this? To understand what happened, we need to back up and see the big picture. His full name was Judas Iscariot. The name Judas was a very common name in first century Israel. In fact, there were two of the disciples who had that name. Judas Lebius Thaddeus was one, and Judas Iscariot was the other. So it was a very common name. It is the Greek form of Judah, the land of God's people. Some say the name comes from a root meaning Yahweh leads, while others think its root has reference to one who is the object of praise. Either way, it's a contradiction in the case of Judas Iscariot. If it means Yahweh leads, it's a contradiction because the gospel accounts make it clear that Judas was led by Satan. If it means one who is the object of praise, it's a contradiction because there was never an individual more unworthy of praise than Judas. The name Iscariot basically comes from a combination of the Hebrew term ish, which means man and karyoth, the name of a town. So Ishkariath, Iscariot, simply means a man from the town of Kariath. It's simply a geographical identification. It's interesting that Judas is the only apostle who is identified geographically. This is important because he is the only non-Galilean, the only Judean Jew. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, if you know anything at all about the land of Israel, then you know that Galilee is the northern section and Judea is the southern section. The northern Galilean section was rural. As a result, the southern Jews usually saw themselves as better than or superior to the rural Jews of Galilee. It's ironic that the one who was supposedly the most superior in the bunch was really the most inferior. How did Judas fit in with the twelve? Why did he even follow Jesus in the first place? And why was he chosen 
by Jesus. It's obvious that Judas was attracted to Jesus on some level. He was drawn to him on some level. We know that because he followed Jesus and stayed with him longer than a lot of other false disciples who bailed out much earlier. Let me show you what I mean. Turn over to John's Gospel, chapter 6. Here in this chapter, Jesus has performed two great miracles. He fed 15,000 people and walked on water. So at this point, he has a huge crowd following him. But when he began to say things they didn't like, the vast majority of this huge crowd bailed out. Go all the way down to verse 66 of John chapter 6. And notice it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now think about this. Even when this great multitude left, Judas stayed. But I'm confident that this commitment was not on a spiritual level. It was totally on a selfish level based on what Judas thought Jesus could do for him. And I personally believe it was directly related to the kingdom. Judas wanted popularity and power and position. That's why he followed Jesus. He knew that if Jesus brought the kingdom, then he would benefit by being one of the insiders. You say, then why did Jesus choose him? Didn't he know all of this about Judas? Oh, absolutely, he knew it. In fact, look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So why did Jesus choose Judas? Here's the answer. To fulfill prophecy. Skip over to chapter 17 of this same gospel, John 17. This is our Lord's great high priestly prayer on the night before his death. And notice what he says in verse 12 as he prays to the Father. He says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the Scripture might be fulfilled. You see, Jesus knew that it was prophesied that he would be betrayed. Judas was the one who fulfilled the prophecies. Those prophecies are recorded in Psalm 41, 9, Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, and then verses 20 and 21, and Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. Judas was the one who would betray Jesus, and Jesus chose him to fulfill prophecy. Some people struggle with that concept. They say, how can God predetermine the betrayal of Jesus, fit Judas into it, and still hold Judas responsible? Look at Luke chapter 22. Go back to the previous gospel, Luke chapter 22. And notice verse 21. Jesus says, But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. 
And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. In other words, this was, this was prophesied. This was planned. So, some might conclude, that means Judas is not responsible. He's not a free moral agent. He had no choice. Oh, no, no, no. Look at the next phrase. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It was prophesied, but God did not force Judas. Judas had a choice. That's a divine tension that our minds cannot totally comprehend. Now, what kind of man was Judas? You know, we have this concept or this view of him that he was an obvious reprobate. When you hear him talked about, you probably picture him as a sinister-looking character that you could easily pick out of a crowd. Yet I'm convinced that Judas didn't come across as being any different than any of the other disciples. To prove this, look at John 13. Go back to John's Gospel, chapter 13. The next Gospel after Luke, John chapter 13. This is Jesus with his men in the upper room the night before his death. And in chapter 13, verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. See, when Jesus said this, the other disciples did not immediately suspect Judas. They had no more reason to suspect Judas than they had reason to suspect themselves. Judas had perfected the art of pretending. Externally, he looked great, but internally, he had no love for Jesus. Back up one chapter to chapter 12. Verse 1 tells us, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. See, he was a greedy, self-centered hypocrite. Yet, as one man put it, Judas had the same potential as any of the others. Christ could have transformed him if his heart had been willing. He had the same raw material and was no more unqualified than the rest. But the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. While the other men were being melted and molded, he was being hardened. End quote. Jesus knew. Now get this. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and yet Jesus gave Judas every opportunity not to fulfill it. So many of the things Jesus taught applied directly to Judas. Just read the teaching of Jesus sometimes with the lens on, on your mind of Judas hearing this. So many of the things Jesus taught applied directly to Judas, but Judas would not hear them. Beloved, how often are we like that? 
We hear what God's Word has to say, but we don't receive it, really. We don't apply it. It's horrible to realize that when we are just hearers of the Word and not doers, we are copying the practice of Judas. He heard what Jesus said over and over again, but he refused to apply it in his own life. He refused to accept it. He refused to embrace it and do anything about it. I believe the turning point for Judas to decide to to betray Jesus is right here in John 12. It was a combination of what Mary did in the opening verses of the chapter and then what happened down in verses 12 and following. Verse 12 tells us the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. When this happened, I think Judas was saying to himself, This is it. Jesus is going to set up the kingdom. But then Jesus burst his bubble by what he said just a few verses later down in verse 23. When Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. When Jesus started talking about giving his life, when Jesus started talking about dying, I think Judas had had it. He was going to sell Jesus for whatever he could get. So we come to the very night in which Jesus was betrayed. To get the setting, we need to turn back to John 13 again, the very next chapter. This is the night before Jesus' death. He's with his men in the upper room. And verse 1 tells us, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. By the way, think of the fact that Jesus washed the feet of Judas on this occasion. Verse 6 tells us, He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew, now here's John's editorial comment, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. And then down in verse 18, Jesus says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. 
You see, the disciples had no idea that one of them would betray Jesus, and Jesus knew that this would devastate them. Think if one of your best friends turned out to be the person who betrayed Jesus, sold him for some silver. So Jesus told his men in advance so that when it came to pass, they would realize that Jesus knew it all along, and that would be a further confirmation of his deity and the reason why they could trust him. Verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. To understand this incident, you need to realize that the Last Supper, and that's where John is headed now with the story. The Last Supper did not take place at a huge oak table with all the disciples sitting on the back side so they could have their picture painted. That's not how it happened. They ate by reclining on the floor with a small table or a group of small tables in their midst. Evidently, John wanted to be very close to Jesus, so he reclined in such a way that his head was right near the chest of Jesus. Peter was across the room from Jesus and John. So Peter motioned for John to whisper to Jesus to find out about whom Jesus was talking. And so in verse 24, Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast... He said to him, Lord, who is it? And Je Now Jesus and John are having this private conversation. Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And at that point, John knew. But only John knew. A little side note here. It was common practice for the honored guest to receive the sop first. Jesus gave the sop to Judas first to honor him and to appeal to him not to carry through with the betrayal. But verse 27 tells us, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, and this, this little interchange lets us know that in, in all likelihood the configuration that night was John was on one side of Jesus and Judas was on the other. So John now knows Judas is the betrayer. Jesus turns to Judas. Again, all the other disciples are having their conversations. So this is sort of a private conversation. Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. A little play on words there from John. It was night. Of course it was night. It was after sundown, but it was dark because one of the darkest deeds in all of human history was about to take place. Back up to Matthew 26. Go back to the first gospel account. Matthew 26, verse 46 Jesus has celebrated Passover. He has prayed with the three disciples as they slept in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he comes to them. They're sleeping. In verse 46, we read, he comes to them and says, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. 
And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer, it's almost as if Matthew doesn't even want to use his name anymore. He just says his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. John tells us that right at this point, Jesus approached Judas so Judas would not have to kiss Jesus. But Judas did it anyway. Verse 49, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. The original language indicates Judas kissed him repeatedly. And then in verse 50, But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him away. The wretchedness of Judas's heart is seen as Jesus reached out to him to the very end, but he refused to respond. How did it end for Judas? Look at chapter 27 here of Matthew's Gospel. Verse 1 says, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing he had been condemned, Judas probably thought, well, they're going to, you know, Jesus will get in trouble. Maybe they'll arrest him, throw him in jail. But when it escalated beyond what he anticipated and that they're going to kill him, they're going to murder him, they're going to crucify him, he was remorseful. He regretted what he had done. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. One man put it this way, quote, Instead of going to God and asking forgiveness, he returned the money thinking that the physical act of returning the money would somehow relieve his spiritual conviction. End quote. Over in Acts chapter 1, we have a final comment about Judas. You can skip past the four Gospels to Acts chapter 1. This is when the disciples were picking a replacement for Judas. Chapter 1, verse 23. They proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. As one man wrote, Judas was the ultimate hypocrite of all time, an illustration of people who can hide in the presence of Christ and be filled with Satan. Judas went to his own place, right where he belonged, and it's the same place all men end up who reject Christ. End quote. So what practical applications can we glean from the life of Judas? There are four that I want to mention as we wind down this morning. Two for Christians and two for non-Christians. So here we go. Number one, Judas is an example of the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil. Judas was totally motivated by money. 
He wouldn't accept Jesus Christ as God because he didn't have room for him as God. Money was his God. John tells us he continually stole from the account. Then he sold the living God for 30 pieces of silver. Rockefeller was once asked how much money satisfies a man. He responded, a little more than he has. When Howard Hughes died, someone asked one of his accountants how much he left. The accountant responded, all of it. He left all of it. Judas was consumed with getting more and more money. 1 Timothy 6.10 warns us with these words, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Please read that verse correctly. It doesn't say money. There's nothing wrong with having money. The problem is if money has us. It doesn't say money is the root of all. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That was Judas. He loved money and pursued money above all else, and he ended up piercing himself through with many sorrows. And right now as I speak, he is still being pierced through with sorrow. Application number two, Judas is an example of the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13 warns us about being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That's what happened to Judas. He wouldn't let go of his sin. And it continued to harden his heart and harden his heart until he eventually became unreachable. Sin must be dealt with or it hardens us to where we won't deal with it. It is shocking, saddening how many people can have obvious and known sin in their lives and yet they just ignore it and refuse to deal with it. Beloved, don't do that. Don't play with sin. Don't don't coddle sin. It will enslave you and harden you. Deal with sin harshly. Jesus said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. He was saying, deal with sin harshly. Deal with sinful attitudes just as severely as sinful actions. Don't play with sin. It's deceitful. You think you can handle it, but you can't. Learn from Judas. And don't be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Application number three, Judas is an example of external religion with no internal reality. Judas never really surrendered his heart and will to the Lord Jesus. It was all external religion, and external religion damns men and women to hell. Don't ever forget that religion is Satan's greatest invention. When we think of the work of Satan, we often think of the occult, you know, like black magic and, and all of these types of things, uh, demonism, Satanism. But don't ever forget that with the occult, Satan has captured thousands, yet with religion, he has captured millions. Judas is an example of external religion with no internal reality. And then application number four. Judas is an example of the emptiness of works for salvation. 
Now think about this. Judas went out to preach the kingdom with the other disciples when Jesus sent them all out. He went out on a missionary journey, two by two, according to Mark 6. He went out with the 70 when they went out on their journey. He attended synagogue. He was baptized. He did all of these religious things. But it was useless, totally useless for salvation. When I think of Judas, I think of Matthew chapter 7. Turn there with me as we close this morning. Go back to the first gospel. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. This is, of course, Jesus talking about judgment someday. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Judas did that, by the way. Cast out demons in your name? Judas did that. Done many wonders in your name? Judas did that. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That was Judas. Did all of these religious deeds but he had no real relationship with Christ. And he ended up being one who practiced lawlessness by selling the pure, innocent Son of God. He is a prime example of the emptiness of religion and works for salvation. He went to his own place. The saddest part about the story of Judas Iscariot is that his story has been repeated time and time again over the last 2,000 years. Maybe it's even being repeated right now in some of your lives. You are not real. You're not real in your relationship with Christ, but no one knows it because you just blend in with the crowd. You go along with the flow, but you have never trusted Christ personally as Lord and Savior. So you don't have a real relationship with him. I appeal to you to admit that you are not really a Christian. Swallow your pride and submit your life to Christ. Don't repeat the story of Judas Iscariot. Let's bow together in closing this morning. As you bow your head with me this morning, maybe even closing your eyes so you're not distracted by any movement going on around you, look at your life, look at your heart, and ask yourself the question, do I really know Jesus Christ? Or am I just pretending? Just blending in, just going through the motions, Do you really know Christ? If you don't, then all of your religious works and religious deeds will be worthless when you stand before the Lord someday and say, but Lord, Lord, look at what I I was baptized. I was a church member. I, 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 I was, you know, faithful to partake of communion and et cetera, et cetera. And you'll hear the words, I never knew you. Depart from me. 
So again, I ask you, do you really know Christ? If you don't, if there's any question in your mind, then call out to the Lord today. Just humble yourself as a little child. Say, Lord Jesus, I, I really want to know you. Not just know about you. I want to know you. I want to really belong to you. I want my heart to belong to you. I don't want it to be like Judas where externally I follow, but my heart doesn't belong to you. Tell the Lord where you're really at and where you want to be. Call on him because Romans says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Father, as we close this morning, we would pray that anyone who needs to call on you for salvation would this very moment call on you. That he or she would be willing to humble themselves, swallow their pride, and call out to you for salvation, for forgiveness, for a true and genuine relationship with Christ. And Father, those of us who do know Christ, we, we still need to evaluate. We need to learn from the example of Judas. We need to learn so that we don't, even as believers, as true followers of Christ, so that we don't follow his example in any way. So help us not to dismiss this message saying, well, this only applies to unbelievers or to those who don't truly know Christ. May we learn from the terrible example of Judas, lest we in any way repeat any of his actions or model any of his character. Father, stir our hearts, work in our hearts, prompt us as you see fit and you do see perfectly. You know us perfectly well. And that's why we ask you to stir and work in our hearts to accomplish your good purposes as we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.